It is so good to see you all this morning. Always, always good to be with you. I'm going to be in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 12 this morning. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along, you can. We're going to post the Scripture on the, on the screen if you don't. Um, but I want to tell you, first of all, about a guy named Costi Hen. Costi uh, is the nephew of the most famous faith healer in the world today, uh, Benny Hen. Maybe you've heard of him. Uh, Costi grew up in the family business, which meant that he traveled the world on private jets, staying in luxury hotels. When he was a teenager, he drove a Hummer, and he had a $10,000 watch. And he believed, because he'd been taught, that that was a sign of God's favor. The fact that he and his family were able to live with such uh, luxury was a sign that they were doing things right, that God was pleased with their lives. Then, as a young adult, he started to see some things that made him start to doubt, planted seeds of doubt in his mind about the things his parents had taught him. Uh, one of the examples was when he went on a crusade to Mumbai, India. He saw such incredible poverty, including the people who flocked to the arena where they were doing their crusade. And he thought, you know, we're living these incredibly luxurious lives on the donations of people like this, people who can barely afford to eat and survive. And that really bothered him. He also realized that most of the people who came to their events went away unhealed. He saw so many, in fact, most of the people who came uh, with severe illnesses and disabilities went away no more healed than they were before. They never even got close to the stage. The people uh, he knew because he worked for them selected who got to go up front. Um, when he was, uh, when he went off to college, he decided he wanted to try to play baseball, and uh, he went to Dallas Baptist, which is a good place to play baseball. Uh, and his coach there was a Christian who taught the word in the locker room before the games, after the games, during practices. He'd never heard the word of God faithfully taught. And so again, that added more cracks to the foundation of what he'd been told growing up. One day, uh, some Christian friends sent him a video of a woman in a wheelchair giving her testimony. Now, the woman's name was Johnny Erickson Tata. Many of you know her or know of her. You've read her books and seen her videos. He'd never heard of her. This was not somebody that Christians in his circle uh, read or paid attention to. And when he saw a woman in a wheelchair giving her testimony, he assumed she was going to get up and walk away and say, God healed me. But instead, she talked about how when she was a, a teenager, she had an accident, was paralyzed from the neck down. And how God had taken her 40, 50 years through this life with joy and courage and faith and a life that impacted thousands. And she just testified that, you know, not only do I look forward to seeing Jesus face to face and dancing in his presence, I believe that I have a fuller life without the use of my arms and legs, but with Jesus than if I'd lived all my life with all my physical faculties, but without him. And he'd never heard that kind of a faith expressed before. The faith that he had heard said that if you were sick, it was your fault because you don't have enough faith. And in fact, people in his family were taught that you don't, you don't talk about your illnesses. You don't talk about your problems because to admit that you have problems, to admit that you're sick is a negative confession. And that might hinder the power of God from healing you or from giving you what you want. Um, in fact, he had a fiance and she was a Christian, but she was not from that prosperity gospel mindset. And, and he convinced her to come and live with their family in the family compound in Vancouver. Um, and at one point she had an asthma attack and nearly died. 
because she couldn't get to her inhaler because she'd hidden it from the family because if they knew that she had an inhaler, they'd know that she had asthma and that would mean that she wasn't favored by God and therefore she probably wouldn't be able to marry him. Now, we're in this series about grit, which is what, the, what I call what the Bible refers to as endurance, which is the ability to keep on doing the will of God without stopping, and it's steadfastness. It's the ability to hang on to what you know is true, even when all the world thinks it's ridiculous. And last week, we talked about how you need grit in order to stay in the body of Christ when, in, a, in a time when people are dropping out left and right. We want, we want to train up people who hold on tight to the will of God and the word of God and the family of God. But today we're going to talk about something even harder, and that is how to, how to keep going and not just survive, but thrive and have joy in your heart, even when life throws the worst it's got at you. And I've been praying really hard about this message because I know two things. I know that there are people in this room, because I'm, I'm the pastor of this church, I know some of them. I know there are people in this room that are suffering in ways that are too profound for me to talk about. I know there are people in this room who, if I make eye contact with them, I found this out in the first service, and so I've been trying carefully since then. If I make contact with them when I'm talking about this, I'm going to lose it because you're going through hard times and times that are so hard they would, they would kill a weaker person. And so I don't want to say anything that minimizes your pain or your struggle. In fact, I want to be an encouragement to you. I know also that there are some of the most popular teachers in Christianity today are more along the lines of, of what Costi Hen grew up with. And they teach a gospel that's not really the gospel. It's, it's part of the word of God. It's not the whole word of God. They tell you how to expect a miracle. They don't tell you what to do when the miracle doesn't come, when it's not God's will to heal, when it's not God's will to deliver you immediately. And when you look at the scriptures, how often it talks about endurance and steadfastness, doesn't that indicate that most of the time we will have to go through hard times? We won't see the miracle, at least not immediately. So what does it take to have that kind of grit? Thankfully, Costi Hinn realized that what he'd been taught wasn't the true gospel, and he has come into the true gospel of Jesus. And so he preaches today passages like the one we're going to read, passages that he did not learn growing up. So let's read together. James 1, verses 2 through 12. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith without, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So what is James's instruction? Remember, this is the brother of our Lord himself. When we hit hard times, I said a moment ago, there are people, probably somebody, at least one person in each pew in this room that are going through incredible pain right now. For those of you that aren't, enjoy it because pain is part of life. You will experience it at some point. 
no matter how old you are, no matter how much money you have or what you do. There's no insurance you can buy that can exempt you. So what do we do when those times hit? How can we not just survive but thrive? James says three things. He says we need to, we need to rejoice, we need to pray, and we need to hope. So I'm going to spend most of my time on that first one, rejoicing, because this is the hardest one for us to wrap our minds around. It doesn't make sense to us. James says, rejoice in what's producing. He says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And I remember for most of my life when I would hear that or read that or one of the many other scriptures that talk about rejoicing and being courageous and, and Paul talking about, I want to know the, the power of Christ and to share the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul's like, yeah, Lord, bring on the suffering. I would always say to myself, well, okay, that may be okay for somebody like Paul or Peter or Mary Magdalene or someone who'd walked with Jesus and, and had his power, but ordinary people like me, that's impossible. There's no way I'll ever rejoice in my pain. But as I learned more, as I grew more, I, I came to see not only are we able to do that, we have to do it. This is, there's no way to make it through these times without rejoicing in it. And I need to explain to you, see, we get this in other areas of life. So those of you, those women of you here who've given birth, you could probably testify that the pain of childbirth was awful. Thank God I will never know. You can probably testify how bad it was, but you can probably also testify that when you were going through that, you were saying to yourself, I'm glad it's finally here because I've been carrying this baby for 40 weeks. I'm ready to see this child. This pain means the child is almost here. So you were able to rejoice even though you were in pain. In the same way, when you were little and you were laying in bed and your parents would, would rub your legs because you were cramping up and they'd say, don't worry, it's just growth pains. It just means you're growing. Well, you could rejoice and you'd say, I don't like this, but I'm glad I'm going to get taller. Obviously, some of us had more growth pains than others, right? <laughs> So, so I'll give you a third example. So I live uh, in, a, in a neighborhood in Conroe that actually has hills. There are neighborhoods, I will just tell you this, here's a quick real estate tip. Just because a, a neighborhood is called the hills of doesn't necessarily mean there are hills there, okay? But in my neighborhood, there are hills. And I like to run, or I don't actually like to, I just feel like I should. So two or three times a week, I get out and run. And here's the thing with running in a neighborhood with hills, Get this, half the time you're gonna be going uphill. The other half is great. If I could arrange it to where I ran downhill the whole time, that would be fantastic. Because when I'm running downhill and gravity's on my side, I feel like I'm in the best shape on earth. I feel like an Olympic decathlete, like I could run forever, but then you have to go uphill. See, if you ran downhill the whole way, you'd never get home. You have to get back. And what goes down must come up and I hate those hills. I hate those things. I hate them more than I hate my cat. I hate those hills. But here's what I've learned about those hills. When the hill starts, I could just give up and go home. Or I could just say, okay, I am not running that. I'm walking. But then I wouldn't grow. See, since the goal of this is I'm not just trying to get from one place to another. I have a perfectly good car for that. But since my goal is to actually get stronger, to get in better shape, to get better cardiovascular health, running the hill, attacking the hill, running as hard as I can means that's going to accomplish my goal. And I hate it. My chest hurts. My legs feel like lead. I feel like, you know, the, the most decrepit old guy on earth. And yet I know I can rejoice in that pain because it's producing something. See, the, the, the thing is, 
The prosperity gospel will never tell you this because they say that when you're going through pain, it's because you don't have enough faith. It's essentially your fault. If you had enough faith, all your problems would go away. But James says that suffering produces steadfastness. That's grit. And steadfastness makes us perfect and complete. So if your ultimate goal in life is to be like Jesus, then rejoicing and suffering makes sense. If your goal in life is anything else, then this will never make sense to you. Now, let me give you six more reasons you can rejoice when suffering hits. Number one, because God will make it up to us. Remember he said in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, in fact, Matthew 5, 11 through 12, rejoice when you're persecuted. Rejoice when people say all manner of things against you and falsely accuse you. Why? Because great will your reward be in heaven. Have you thought about this lately? We always say as Americans, thank God I live in America. Thank God I live where we're free. Thank God I don't have to be persecuted for my faith. And I, I say amen to all of that. But in heaven, it's going to be sort of the reverse. We're going to look at people who lived in oppressive regimes and suffered for their faith. And we're going to say, yeah, those people were blessed because they, they, they got to actually suffer for their faith. And now they're reaping the rewards. Jesus also said to his disciples, if you lose anything from me, houses, lands, family, money, you get it back hundredfold. It is a good thing to be, to have, to, to be in debt, to, to, God, to have God in debt to you. He pays off with fantastic interest. So we know that we never lose anything. We never experience pain that God doesn't reward us for. And please understand something. I don't believe God causes most of the pain we go through. I don't think most of the pain you go through is God up there disciplining you or punishing you. Sometimes he does. Scripture tells us that. I think most of the time our pain is the result of our own bad choices or simply the result of living in a world that's messed up where painful, ugly, awful things happen. So God is able to make that up to us. Number two, God will use our pain. Nearly every significant leap forward that I've experienced in my own faith where I've grown and become a better man has come during a time of pain or sorrow or stress or fear. And I don't like that. I wish it wasn't that way. In fact, I don't think God likes it that way. I think God wishes that I was a faithful enough Christian that even when everything was going my way, I would be just as focused on him as I am in the times when I'm desperate. But the truth is I'm not. Because when everything's going my way, I get complacent and I take my eyes off him and put them on my blessings and I, I start to feel entitled like I deserve all this good stuff that's been given me. And so God knows if I want this guy to grow, I'm going to have to take advantage of every time he walks through the valley of the shadow of death. And yeah, I believe God is weeping alongside me, but I also believe he is taking advantage. He is not wasting one moment of my pain. And I believe it's that way with you. You can rejoice you can rejoice that God is going to use the pain in your life, just like I use the, the pain of running up those hills. Number three, we can rejoice because God may perform a miracle. Listen, it's not just prosperity gospel people who believe in miracles. It's in the scriptures. God parts the Red Sea. Jesus raises the dead. He walks on water. He feeds 5,000. He, he, he gives this, this starving widow in, in the Old Testament all the food she needs to feed her son, even though she's got nothing in her cupboard. God does amazing things. And whenever we go through pain, we know it's a possibility. In fact, 
This may sound like the most obvious statement ever, but if there was never any pain, there would never be any miracles. There would never be anyone healed if there was no disease. There would never be any, any amazing provision if there was no poverty. And so when we go through painful circumstances, yes, should we pray for a miracle? Absolutely. And we should rejoice knowing that if God chooses this moment in our lives to work an amazing miracle, it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be awesome. But number four, we can rejoice because one way or another, God will show the world how good he is. See, even if he doesn't do some overwhelming miracle that all the world can see, he's going to work in our pain in such a way that it's going to glorify himself and it's going to draw others to him if we let him. So I've got an example. Matthew Paris, not a believer in Jesus. In fact, he's an atheist, former member of British Parliament who now works as a writer. Uh, he wrote a letter. I'm, not, I'm sorry, not a letter, but uh, an article in a British uh, newspaper a few years ago. And it made a lot of his fellow unbelievers very, very angry. Because he talked about how he was born and, and grew up the early part of his life in Africa and then moved to the UK, you know, became very successful. And then a few years ago, went back and visited his homeland. And he said, both when I was a kid and today, I noticed the same thing. The Christians in Africa stand out. He said, and this is a direct quote from the article, he said, there is about them a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world, a directness in their dealings with others that seems to be missing in traditional African life. They stand tall. He said, of course, there are Christians in England, but it's so prosperous in England that you just figure everybody's blessed. But in a place where there's so much poverty and there's so much disease, where there's so much that they lack that we have, the Christians tend to stand out. In fact, he went on to say, what Africa needs most is not more aid from the outside. It needs more missionaries to convert people to Christ. This is an atheist writing these words because he's seen how God is glorified when suffering happens. You and I can rejoice. Even though we hate the pain we're going through, we can rejoice and say, you know, normally I don't really have, and I hate this word, but I'm going to use it anyway. I, I don't usually have a platform. I don't usually have a platform to share all that God's done for me. Uh, you know, nobody wants to listen to me. But right now when I'm going through a difficult time, everybody I know, all the people I work with, all the kids at school, all the, all the folks in the neighborhood that are watching me, some of them feeling sorry for me, now's an opportunity to show the joy of the Lord, to show the courage that only he gives. God can use this to show the world how good he is. Number five, you will have a new way to bless others. Okay, here's, here's the part I really had to pray hard about because I'm going to get specific about some things. So I've never lost a child, but there are people in this room who have. I've never been through divorce I've watched some of my friends, family members, church members go through it, and I see the terrible pain of that. I mean, on both sides, it is an awful, grueling, terrible experience. I've never been diagnosed with an incurable disease or had chronic pain that lasted for months or for the rest of my life. I've never experienced that, but some of you have. Some of my family members have. Some of my members of former churches have. I don't know how you do it. 
I've never had to care for someone who I loved over a long period of time, been the one who cared for them as their body fell apart or as their mind went away. And yet my, I have family members that are going through that right now. I've seen church members go through it. I know some of you are going through that right now and it's not something you planned. It's not some, there's no college course for it. You're not equipped. It's just, it's all on you. And it's terrible. It's hard. And I say all that to say this. I love being a pastor. I love being your pastor. I feel like I was trained well. I feel like God has called me to this church and, and, and I want to be the best pastor I can be for you. And yet I know that when one of you is in that circumstance, there are things that people in this room can say to you that would be meaningful than, more meaningful than anything I can say because they've been through it and I haven't. I've had my suffering, but none of those things. So when you go through one of those things, when you're diagnosed with a disease or when you lose a loved one or when, when you're, you're the sole caretaker for someone who's, who's having a hard time and someone like that comes to you and says, I've been there. Let me tell you what brought me joy in the midst of the darkness. Let me tell you what not to do. Let me tell you how to make it through. Let me tell you what I learned. You're going to listen to them more than anything I can say from this pulpit or in your face. So you can rejoice. Whatever pain you go through, there will be others behind you who have that same pain. You'll be able to turn around and say, let me tell you how good God is. And you'll be their lifeline. And that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And then number six, you can rejoice because God works all things together for good. Romans 8.28 will be true until the end of time. And so even though in the midst of the darkest of times, you may not be able to see any reason at all to rejoice, you can remember God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that will always be true. And you may not be able to see how, but you know, according to that verse, that someday when you get to the top of whatever hill you're running right now, you'll be able to look back and go, okay, now I get it. I didn't know one. I didn't understand while I was going through it, but now I see. Now I see, Lord, why you allowed me to go through this pain. Why you didn't intervene. Now I understand. We can rejoice. We must rejoice. Number two, we need to pray. Specifically, pray for wisdom. When verse five switches topics, it seems to at least but not really. He's talking about suffering and then he says, hey, if anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask God and he will give it. Well, what is that about? He's not actually switching topics because he goes back into suffering later. So what is he doing? He knows, he knows that our human nature is when hard times hit, our first response is just going to be to pray to God, Lord, take it away. Lord, heal me. Lord, settle this. Restore me. Make everything good again. And that's fine. That's a good thing to pray. That is perfectly acceptable, but don't stop there. James says, pray for wisdom in your pain. Now, why do we need wisdom in pain? Well, what is wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to make the right decision. It's the ability to know what's really true and what's false. Remember when we were kids and we were taught, if your clothing ever catches fire, you're supposed to stop, drop, and roll. Anybody remember that, right? That was drummed into us when we were kids. I'm glad they're still teaching kids today. So why do they teach that? Because whoever made that up knows when you experience sudden, unexpected, intense pain, your natural response is going to be to panic. And when you panic, you do the wrong thing. When you panic, you tend to do things that make the situation worse. So for instance, if your clothing catches fire and you panic, you take off running. That's the wrong thing to do. 
When we experience pain, we're the same way. Whether it's emotional pain, physical pain, we panic. We didn't expect this. Life wasn't supposed to be this way. And so we respond in ways that make the situation worse. Like, for instance, have you ever been having a really hard time and you find that you're, you're good around everybody else, but you're a real bear to be around when you're around your family? You just bite their head off at the slightest provocation. Or your friends who come and ask you, how you're, well, how do you think I'm doing? I mean, you bite the heads off of the people who love you the most, and that's the opposite of what you should do. Or, or, or you say, you know, I know it's Sunday, but there's no way I'm going to church. I'm mad at God. I can't pray. I can't sing those songs. I don't even mean them right now. And if I just go and sit in the pew, I'll just sit there and cry. I'm not going. Well, that's where you need to be. Your, your church family needs to see that you're weeping, so we know to pray for you. You need to sing those songs because you need to be reminded of who God is. You need to pray even, even if you don't feel like it because, I mean, that's what Job did. That's what David did. They were mad as God and had, mad at God and had a reason to be. But you need wisdom to do that because none of that comes naturally. So pray for wisdom. And then number three, hope in the future. Last week we talked about hope. This week we're going to talk about it. I imagine we're going to talk about it in future weeks as we talk about grit. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Blessed. That's a word we hear in church, right? Blessed. And we just kind of let it wash over us. It's one of those religious sounding words we never really explore. But it has a very powerful meaning. The word blessed, you could translate it enviable. You could translate it lucky, but not in the superstitious sense, just in the sense that, oh, that guy's got it going. He's, you know, she's got it going on. She's got the life. Think about the way we treat celebrities. Think about that word, for instance. We celebrate this person. Why? We celebrate them because they have certain physical proportions that make them physically attractive to us for a short period of time, y'all. Or they're really good at playing a game that we played as kids. Or they're really good at singing a song or pretending to be someone else on screen. Or they're really good at making money and living a lavish lifestyle. Or they're really good at getting elected. Or they're a Kardashian. I have no idea why they're famous. But so, so we have these people who we put up on this pedestal and we celebrate them. And I'm not trying to dismiss those people. All of those are children of God and they matter to him. And, and some of them are believers. I, I, I think about... For instance, uh, Denzel Washington, one of my favorite, two or three favorite actors in the world. I'll, I'll see anything he's in um, and proclaims himself a Christian. I believe him. He's, he's got a good testimony. I look forward to meeting Denzel in heaven. I probably won't meet him on earth, but here's what I believe. I believe when I meet Denzel in heaven, there's not going to be a crowd around him. There's not going to be people taking pictures of him. He's just going to be another soul who's saved because what he's celebrated for on earth won't matter in eternity. The people we will celebrate in eternity are not going to have any of those characteristics I described. They're going to be the people, according to James, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. The people we will look back on and say, now that was a life well lived. Will be people, some of them dirt poor, some of them in horrible circumstances, some of them with lives that right now we wouldn't trade places with, but in heaven we'll look at them and say, how did you do it? Tell me the story again. Those will be the people we will celebrate for all of eternity because they had that grit that the rest of us lacked. And James says that they will receive the crown of life. 
Now, that's not a king's crown. There's one king in that place, and it's Jesus. It's not you. It's the crown instead of the champion in, in the Olympic Games back in the ancient world. They didn't give gold medals. They gave crowns. So that reminds me of my, my favorite grit passage in the whole Bible, and that's Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, where Jesus says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so Hebrews is telling us when we are running up a hill and we hate it and it's awful and it's painful and we want to quit, what we have to do is look to Jesus. Look to Jesus who, who went up that hill called Calvary, that hill in, in Aramaic called Golgotha, where our salvation was. You think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You think about him face down on the ground, sweating blood, weeping, knowing what he was about to go through for us. And then the soldiers came and he stood up. And in spite of all the fear he felt, and in spite of, I'm sure his stomach was in knots, he didn't walk away. He walked toward the soldiers. He said, I'm the one you're looking for. Now, how did he do that? He did it, according to this, for the joy that is set before him. What joy could there possibly be in being crucified? Well, ask yourself this question. At that point in life, what was the one thing in the whole universe that Jesus wanted but didn't have? The answer is us. The joy set before Jesus was, if I go up that hill, then some of them will be safe. And some of them will spend eternity with me. And that makes it worth it. And that's the joy that's set before me. And so when you and I are, are running up our own separate hill, we look to Jesus, not just as an inspiring example, although he's that. We look to him and we say, Lord, I can't do this. I can't. The hill's too steep and I'm too weak. I can't even get out of bed. So I need your strength. I need your courage. I need your faith. I need your hope. I need for you to take my place. I, I want to be crucified with Christ so that I no longer live. Now you live in me. I need you and he will deliver. He had joy in his heart in spite of the fear because of what his pain would produce. He went up the hill called Golgotha and he bought our salvation. He took away our sin and death forever. And you can walk up to your hill too. You can run and not grow weary. You can walk and not grow faint.